News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it is nice every once in a while to hear some good news when it comes to salmon in our province, and hopefully this is some good news. You may have seen the pictures of this. They were definitely out there in the news and on social media. It was what happened over the weekend in Port Coquitlam. There were so many spawning coho just below the hatchery at Noons Creek in Port Moody that people stopped to watch what was going on and take pictures. And I saw some of the videos too, and I thought, well, this is just absolutely lovely because that stretch of very dry weather, that drought that we had, had a lot of people worried about the state of local salmon runs. Let's talk about, you know, whether or not we can get hopeful about this. Michael Manier is with us now, CEO of the Pacific Salmon Foundation. Michael, thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, Simi. Nice to uh, connect with you. And as you said, they have some, some positive news. Yeah, let's talk about how positive is this? What's going on out there? Well, we know these are very resilient fish, uh, our Pacific salmon, and they're very smart. They've been honing these uh, instincts to return home to their native streams for a long, long time. And we had a sense that they were holding out in the salt water, uh, waiting for the conditions to improve. And as you said, we've had, you know, three months here of really dry conditions, which means our, our waters were low, which means the water temperatures were low. And that's not good for salmon spawning. So they hung out, they waited, and then mercifully we got a nice dump of rain, as you know, over the last week uh, or so. And uh, and they, as soon as they had a chance, they started heading heading home. And so our our local streams throughout the lower mainland, uh, we're seeing fish in Maple Ridge, Coquitlam, uh, Burnaby, Port Moody, Port Coquitlam. Um, they're they're starting to fill up with the fish, and they're on to do uh, what they're supposed to do, which is to spawn, and then of course they die and and become food for uh, all all manner of flora and fauna. So this is this is even though the humans uh, we're not so keen to see the the rain coming. Uh, this is real good for the fish. I don't know. I think recently we were pretty happy to see this rain coming <laughs> because we were feeling what it was like out there. So you talked about how resilient salmon are. Have we seen this before? Do we believe they will bounce back then? Yeah, they are resilient. You know, they're such a unique animal in so many ways. They start in fresh water, and we have some salmon that are born in uh, streams and rivers, you know, 500 plus kilometers up into the interior and then have to make that journey out to the North Pacific where they grow and then they turn around and they come right back. So it's a, it's a long journey, a lot in their way. And so they, they've had to learn how to be adaptable. And, uh, you know, a lot of the things that they encounter are driven by climate change, uh, such as the, the, the low water conditions, the increased temperatures that we're seeing. But there's a lot of things that we've put in their way as obstacles as well that, that we need to get rid of and, and change. And uh, so we're, we're positive that these fish, uh, you know, they've been surviving and adapting for a long, long time. And uh, I, th- I think we're going to do okay. But, it, you know, it, it is clear that this last year has been really tough for fish because, you know, remember, we've, we've had drought. We had serious flooding last year in the lower mainland. Uh, and, and all of these factors are going to contribute to, to a more challenging uh, situation for this, this year's salmon that we're also heading out uh, to water. So it's just, you know, I think it's, it shouldn't be doom and gloom. It should be a reminder to all of us that we have a role to play in British Columbia. That's why we've started the salmon spotting campaign on our website at psf.ca. 
and where we're also encouraging people not just to get out and see salmon returning to spawn, but to volunteer and help out with the local stream keeping activities. Okay, so tell me about that campaign then, because uh, obviously there's still some concern elsewhere, right? We're talking about one particular area where we could see the salmon jumping, and that was great, but are there other areas we're still worried about? Well, yeah, as I said, with the uh, climate change situation that we're facing, we we know in particular that the Fraser is a very challenging river system, and, you know, a majority of our population here in British Columbia live on or around the Fraser system, and the further up you go into the interior, the more we're facing uh, these drought conditions <clears throat> where we have forest flyer, fires that are affecting salmon streams. You know, the forest fires denute the, the terrain around streams, and that all sends junk down into the streams that destroy spawning habitat. And then we've got the flooding uh, issues that can occur. So there's a lot of work to be done in streams and little, little side channels all throughout British Columbia. We have a network of 300-plus volunteer organizations uh, and indigenous partners that are working on projects to restore habitat. Uh, and through our website, psf.ca, you can find out how to volunteer with those activities. But we also have places to go see the salmon returning all across BC. Vancouver Island's got quite a few, uh, all the way up to Fraser. Uh, so, you know, our message is that it's, it's really up to all of us in BC to take care of salmon. We did a poll about a year ago, real quick, Simi, uh, on, on how important are salmon to people. 86% of British Columbians said that salmon were their number one environmental issue in BC, ranked even above climate change in general. So we know people care, and when they're given the opportunity to help out, fix our streams, uh, they will do so. That obviously, that passion, does that translate to people volunteering and helping out and taking action, Michael? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have a great job. I, I, I work for a nonprofit that solely focuses on wild salmon. You know, we have a gala every year where we get over 700 people turn out of the convention center. And then in smaller communities around Vancouver Island, we get three, 400 people turn out at our, at our fundraising events. Uh, we have clocked uh, the, in, in one given year up, upwards of 35,000 volunteers out there working for Pacific Salmon. Uh, so we know it's a priority. And then, of course, the, the school programs, the Stream of Dreams, the Salmon in the Classroom, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of kids experience salmon. It really is. People often say it's an icon. I don't like that. I say it's our lifeblood, Pacific salmon. You know, they're still very much a part of our, certainly our environment, our economy, but, but Lord knows they're part of our culture and identity uh, here in British Columbia. So we all have to do our part to, to help them out. And now's a great time to get out there, see them do their miraculous spawning. And, and to see the habitat that, that we can all help protect and restore for them. It's also just so nice to hear something hopeful about salmon these days. It just the, the news always doesn't seem good when it comes to this particular fish, Michael. I'll tell you, well, you know, it's a good point, Simi. And I think in the context of climate change, we have to be really careful not to just doom and gloom, overwhelm people with bad news all the time. We've got lots of species, and salmon are one of them where, yes, there are challenges, but we've got to take care of our mental health, too, and be positive and upbeat and know that, that we really can help move the needle in favor of these animals uh, through, through our own good deeds. And, and it's, it's real. I'm not just saying that. It's, it's why I get fired up and energized about the job and, and my team at the Salmon Foundation. So uh, get out there. Visit psf.ca. They've got 70-plus sites you can go see uh, the salmon. There are, many of these are public access, very family-friendly. To get out there with the kids and see the salmon doing this uh, miraculous journey and help us out. I love it. All right, Michael, thank you. Uh, thank you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. Michael Manier is the CEO of the Pacific Salmon Foundation. 
It is refreshing to hear good news when it comes to salmon. You know, that drought that we had leading right up towards the end of October there, it, it was very scary in terms of the impact that was having on our province. Now, though, with the rain that we have had in the last 10 days, almost two weeks, we are getting close to October averages for precipitation. Those numbers, according to Mark Madriga, and that is having a very positive impact, particularly on salmon returning to creeks in Metro Vancouver, too. This is Mornings with Simi. Doesn't happen very often in this province, but the provincial government has reached a tentative new contract with BC's Teachers Federation, and that is a pretty big deal, actually. So what does this mean? What's in it? What do we know about it? Well, joining us now is Clint Johnson, president of the BCTF. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Simi. It's great to be here. Yeah, how did this happen then? So how intense were these negotiations? Uh, well, they were pretty intense. We spent 50-plus um, days at the table with the employer um, going back and forth. Um, I think it's you know worth noting that these were also in the context of the larger kind of public sector bargaining that was going on. So there's movement into other areas that affected us at the table. But, uh, yeah, ours certainly were some intense work done by both sides. Okay, what were some of the challenges there? Well, some of the challenges, obviously, are the challenges that are facing a lot of workers in BC right now, which is we're seeing inflation at rates that we haven't seen in decades. Um, so our members were certainly looking for some security against these rising prices to make sure that they didn't take an effective pay cut. Um, you know, there's the age-old age old one that's always a significant issue of workload. Um, I think everybody's heard a lot about that, about the, the language that affects the environment our members are working in and how much work they have to do. Um, but other than that, there were some areas also this time that were nice to see we had some mutual interest on and could work towards the uh, deal on. Yeah, okay. What were some of those issues then? Well, we're both looking to try to make sure that our uh, our contracts, our workplace, they're, they're more diverse and that they, they provide some uh, some rights and protections uh, for members who are, uh, you know, either uh, black, indigenous or people of color. Uh, teaching environment to get more of those people in so our schools more accurately reflect the communities that they're in. And so those are areas that we were interested on seeing how we could improve contracts and and create a better environment like that. Okay, and what about those increases as well? What do we know about, you know, what's going to be offered to teachers here? Well, I think think the the basic, the general wage increases will be very um, familiar to the public by now after a few settlements. The other piece that I think is important is that there's no questioning anymore that there's a significant teacher shortage in the province. So one of the things we're pleased to have is uh, that the first step of the salary grids is going to be removed, which means that our starting colleagues, our starting teachers in BC, will be starting at a higher salary. Um, and we're hoping that that's a significant help in attracting people into the profession and making them uh, view it as a viable profession to join. Okay, and how does this compare then when you say removing that year one off the salary grid? What does that do comparably with other provinces? Well, what that means is that um, by, you know, by the end of the three years, for sure, you're going to have most of our starting teachers are going to be in a competitive range across the country. We're not going to quite catch up to everybody. Places like Calgary, I think, are still going to have a, a higher starting salary. But the other piece is there's been some very small uh, increases at the very top of the grid, which is where most of our members spend most of their career. Um, and those are going to certainly help uh, those members reach parity, kind of uh, be up in the top of the country in terms of what teachers are getting as compensation, which we think is, is appropriate given that we live in the most expensive jurisdiction in the country. All right. And so how long is this deal uh, going to run for? 
the deal is going to be a three-year contract like you've seen with the other uh, public sector deals. Uh, so it'll go until 2025. Right. I know there obviously still teachers have to vote on that. So what is that process going to be like? What's the timeline? Well, over the next few weeks, we'll be um, supporting our locals. Ours is an interesting. The locals are the ones who actually run the, the, the uh, ratification votes. So they'll be figuring out exactly their process for doing that. Uh, we set a date for it, and over the next couple of weeks, there'll be information coming from the Federation out. We'll provide resources to them. Our executive committee will be going to general meetings and uh, sharing updates and talking to members about what the deal looks like. And, and then there will be a vote, and we'll see what the members think. All right. Now, Clint, I know everybody's talking about this. I said this, too. I mean, it, this doesn't happen very often in B.C. where you can get like a negotiated settlement, is it? No, it's, I, I hate to say, it, but it is a bit of a rarity for us. Um, and I think it's something that both sides were conscious of. Uh, like I said, I, you know, it, it also helps that there was some movement created by some of the other unions uh, who did what we call a bit of heavy lifting and, and got the government and their employer uh, to move a little bit. But it is the goal. Always, every time we sit down at the table, the goal is to finish at that table so that our members can keep working uninterrupted, can get a fair deal, um, and the students can keep going to school. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Sam. We appreciate it. Clint Johnson, president of the BC Teachers Federation, talking about, yes, a negotiated deal between the province and teachers still has to be voted on. And of course, that is the next step on this. This is Mornings with Simi. We are just a few weeks away from the World Cup, and for the first time since 1986, Canada has a team in the game. That's right, a team in the tournament. Uh, We are going, which means there's going to be a lot of interest, even above and beyond what we normally see with a World Cup, which is pretty crazy. And that is why BC's bars, pubs, and restaurants are being given the option to stay open later or open earlier so people can catch those FIFA World Cup games. How is this going to work? How does this impact you? Joining us now is Jeff Guinard, who's the Executive Director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Okay, is this good news? Yeah, well, it's great news. We, uh, we've done this a few times in the past, right? So I think we did it in 2015 for Rugby World Cup and the Olympics. And what we find is that, you know, we're dealing with time zones here and you've got major sporting events going on in other countries that folks here in British Columbia want to watch. It's pretty hard to, you know, gather in your rec room or your, your living room with a bunch of friends at 7 o'clock in the morning sometimes. So we encourage folks to come on up to the pubs and bars, particularly you can see a lot of sports bars having special coverage. We've got the big TVs, got the great sound systems, and we're going to have uh, a lot of fun watching the games, particularly because Canada's in it this time, which is going to be really exciting. Right. Okay. So then what can bars do and what can't they do with these new rules? Yeah, so the new rules are basically allowing us to open uh, a bit earlier in the morning. It's still open a bit later. Normally, you you can't open except between like 9 and um, and 2 a.m. in most cases. So we'll be able to open a bit earlier. We're not extending liquor service at the moment. Uh, basically, it's just bringing about that breakfast, brunch, you know, come in for some food and some snacks and to get access to the, the big televisions and the sound systems and everything. Uh, we are asking government um, in partnership with our friends of the Restaurant Association just for the final, maybe to extend liquor, liquor service that day. We don't expect uh, a whole lot of demand for people to drink beer at 7 o'clock in the morning, but I, I'm sure they would for the final itself. Right. Okay. So that's going to be an exception there. So would it have been so. would, would have been a more ideal? Like, was there something better that you were hoping for? No, I think government made the right decision here. And this is, this is what we asked for. This is what industry asked for. And ultimately, we just want the ability to open our doors and invite people in to come and find a place to watch the game. Uh, I mean, I remember in 2015, I had some friends who would pop in before work to go watch uh, a Rugby World Cup game. So you can you can imagine the kind of enthusiasm there. 
Also, coming out of the pandemic, you can remember that most pubs, bars, restaurants have all been losing money or barely breaking even for a couple of years. So we're looking for cool opportunities uh, that we know customers are going to like to try and bring in uh, more people and a bit of extra revenue. So it's, we think it's going to be a really exciting time, and um, we, we just hope Canada does well because anytime Canada performs well in these international sports, to be bringing more people and uh, game after game. Yeah, I'm wondering how much of a difference does just say the World Cup in general make to bars? Yeah, so there are certain events every few years like the World Cup or even, you know, in you know, the, the Stanley Cup playoffs, for example, here in Canada that, that do have a significant increase. Uh, people like to go out to, you know, bars and, and restaurants and watch these kind of games with their friends uh, and watch them get a good crowd and a very lively, exciting atmosphere. So I don't have a number for a percentage of revenue increase, but I know a lot of our members are quite excited about it and looking forward to it. Right. So this is stuff. So then can we say, Jeff, that like, Things are getting back to normal when it comes to the industry? Yeah, generally things have been improving dramatically. I mean, we, we had a big hiccup a couple of months ago with the strike that was locking off access to some, some products right. that we couldn't get from those warehouses. And that we're still dealing with some, some impact from the distribution side. But overall, uh, you know, we had a, a long end of the summer, and that's been really good. Uh, patio season is unfortunately over here in the lower mainland, but. Um, you know, the industry is, is really quite resilient and, and it is on the way back to recovery. Events like this are really well-timed, particularly in, you know, in the months of December, sorry, November leading into December. It's, it's ramping up to one of our busiest times of year and this allows us to extend that period. So moving the hours a bit forward, allowing people to come and watch those games at 7 a.m., stick around for brunch and if you want to have, you know, a pint of beer or something, that'll happen at 11 a.m. in most cases. Uh, and then maybe for the final, we'll get it a bit earlier. But yeah, it should be a really exciting time for industry. So this is like literally a great Christmas for potentially <laughs> for bars and restaurants, because normally that would be a busy time for you anyway. But on top of that, you are getting this unusual like timing for the World Cup this year. You're exactly right. And that it could not come at a better time for our recovery. That December was always going to be busy with the various holiday parties leading into New Year's. But November can kind of be touch and go for a lot of places. So it allows us to start a little bit earlier and it, it, you know, it's, it's a kind of a perfect storm, but in, in a good way this time where we get to offer something that consumers want uh, and are going to enjoy. We can be able to go to their neighborhood pubs and restaurants and sports bars to have a, a great experience and celebrate with people who love watching the World Cup. It's going to be a good one then. So is it? do you find that it's kind of across the board here? It's not just like for when Canada's going to play, right? Because it gets busy with a lot of teams. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're not just... Uh, you know, a city of one culture, and we've got a very diverse uh, background of, of people here in the city. So lots of people will be cheering for lots of different teams. And that's what makes it so exciting to go out um, you know, to a place like a sports bar where you're encountering fans of all kinds of different teams. Obviously, if Canada does well, that'll bring even more people out. But regardless of how Canada does, we expect it's going to be a busy period and, and a lot of excitement out there. And uh, we, we appreciate the government did the right thing and you know, moved the hours so folks could uh, get out and enjoy those experiences. Well, sounds like it's going to be fun. All right, Jeff, thank you. My pleasure. Have a good one. You too. That's Jeff Guinard, who's the Executive Director of Alliance of Beverage Licensees.
talking about the rules, the new rules that are being put in place. It's a temporary change that is happening to operating hours for the FIFA World Cup because we know huge interest in this, right? Uh, But this year, because of the time zone in which the games are being played, well, it's going to be, you know, middle of the night here, early, early hours of the morning. And bars don't normally or they're not normally allowed to serve alcohol during that time. So there's a loosening up of those regulations. This is between November 20th to December the 18th. And you just know it's going to be jam-packed at all hours for some of these games. And yes, particularly because Canada is in the World Cup this time for the first time since 1986. So are you planning on participating? Will you be going to, you know, bars or pubs to check out some of these games? Or do you have a setup all ready to go at home? What I love about the World Cup is just how crazy people get about it and the different teams, right? Everybody has a different team and it's just a great time to be had. So it'll be fun watching this unfold this time around too. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news this morning, the BC government is overhauling the payment model, the whole relationship with doctors in this province in the hopes that this will help us not just retain more family doctors, but also attract new ones. So let's get the details behind this deal. Joining us now is Adrian Dix, Health Minister of BC. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Okay, this obviously was, has been going on for a while. What were you hoping to get out of this? Uh, well, exactly what we got, which is a foundational change and uh, a new option for us to pay family doctors to, to recognize the work that they actually do and to focus on providing care to patients. People have been talking about the fee-for-service system for decades and the need to reform it. We did it by working with family doctors across BC, by sitting down and co-designing a model that would work for them, that would be attractive to new doctors, and that would provide better care for patients. And so the focus here is on the time doctor spends with a patient, the number of patients they see in a day, the number of patients, meaning attachment, that they support in their offices, and also the complexity of the cases they're facing. And I think that this, along with other changes we're making, will make things better for patients and for doctors. It's foundational. It's not enough in itself, but it's foundational. And it's what especially new doctors who we need to attract to replace doctors who are retiring and the new doctors we need to attract to address those looking for a family doctor. It's what they want and I think uh, reflects the realities of healthcare today. You said it's not enough in itself. What else needs to be done then? Well, uh, some of the things we're doing. We've added 128 spaces, 88 of them residency spaces to the University of BC Medical Program. We're adding a medical program at SFU. And what we are seeking here is to ensure that all those people that we train as family doctors work as family doctors or as many of them as possible because there are other jobs for family doctors in the community. And so what the agreement does, and that's why it's important, is it also equalizes compensation between people who say work as family doctors but do so in a hospital under a contract and those who uh, work in the community. Previously, because they had to deal with growing overhead costs, it was a better deal say, to work in the hospital. And so we've equalized these arrangements to make sure that we're attracting people, the people that we need to be family doctors. But there's more to this agreement than that. In addition, it allows doctors themselves, working with other health professionals like nurse practitioners, to increase the service and the types of practices they have in the community, continues to build out team-based care. And it's going to provide, and this has never happened in BC before, what's called a rostering system. So we know 
which which patients family doctors have taken responsibility for, who need the family doctor, and are more easily able where there are places available to provide opportunities to people to get doctors. So it's a it's a comprehensive refresh not only of the way we do primary care with family doctors, but the compensation model, and it's something we did together. Okay, and how how soon will that be set up? For a lot of people who need a family doctor, I know it can't be soon enough. Well, um, so the agreement, of course, will be in place. It has to be ratified uh, by the by uh, the doctors of BC, and it includes a lot of other elements beyond just family doctors. But the, those are obviously the were the focus of this discussion. Um, so the new system will come in. Of compensation will come in starting on February first, once it's ratified, and then we work through. As you know, we made changes in August to support doctors with overhead in the meantime. We've had success in terms of attracting new-to-practice doctors who are, uh, who are uh, uh, to become full-service family doctors in the community, and that uh, program we started in July. And we need to recruit and we need to ensure that the people who are going into these increasing space in our residency programs um, uh, continue to go through and work as full-service family doctors in B.C., and all of this is going to be happening in the coming months. The rostering system will be in place by July 1st of next year. But we hope to see some positive changes. But again, there's no silver bullet to these things. One solution that addresses everything. We need to address recruitment. We need to keep doing what we've been doing, which is build out team-based care in the community. We've got to do a better job providing what I call episodic care and link that into the system more. That means... Uh, the UPCC program, which has you know served 1.4 million people so far, will continue to expand, and in- integrating our walk-in clinics into the system in a better way. All of these are part of what we've uh, worked on with uh, family doctors and with other health professionals in the last period. Okay, and what about foreign-trained doctors, doctors who are from here, who went to a medical school in another country, and would love to come back and practice here? Well. Two things. One, uh, we'll have more to say about that. And the new Premier, David Eby, is very focused on this issue and ensuring that um, people have better access. So we'll have more to say in the coming weeks about this question. But already we're looking at steps to uh, improve access for foreign trained doctors, in particular those who haven't had residency. In other words, are not yet qualified to practice here. Without that, we've increased significantly the number of residency spaces just recently, and you're going to see that coming into effect. That's good news. We have a program called uh, the Practice Ready Assessment Program, which is significant and has provided a lot of doctors all around BC, including uh, in especially in rural areas. That's people coming into practice against a return of service. They have to work in a particular community for three years, and uh, the new premier is certainly looking at expanding that as well. So those are the things that we're working on on that question in the coming weeks. Okay. And does this change, does this new agreement change the fees that are paid for services? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, it's a new model of payment. And what we're, the goal is to ensure that people working in the community who have to deal with overhead and everything else and are running their, their independent practices in the public health care system in the community uh, are, are, have an equivalent payment to those who are, say, working as hospitalists. So, yes, there are changes in the payment program to ensure that uh, we're competitive and we're saying to people who practice in the community, we value this work, we value it equally with other work. And so you see the increases in, in, uh, in the new funding arrangement and the new, uh, in the new right. uh, payment scheme. So, remember, currently, 
um, the people get roughly $250,000. Now, that's not the apples-to-apples comparison because some people don't work full-time to get that, but that has been the amount, and that's been generally under what family doctors get when they work in other settings. So this is a change in that arrangement. There's a core payment if you work full-time of $385,000. And remember, we were looking at the base of $300,000 because overhead often comes off that, right? And that's a very significant sum of money, but but, uh, there are expectations in terms of getting that money, in terms of providing care for patients. And I think it's a a good deal for British Columbians, for taxpayers, and for uh, family doctors. And and what about the complexity of care for certain patients? So that was also a concern, right, where doctors didn't have the time to spend with someone who had more complex conditions. Is there now more of an incentive for doctors to spend that extra time? That's right. We, what we have is a model that includes complexity of patients. So if you just have a fee-for-service model, every service is roughly the same. I mean, there's some nuances to that. It's, mm-hmm. it's more complex than that. But um, if someone just needs to go in and get a prescription renewed, that might take ultimately two minutes, right, if you know the patient and everything else, and uh, someone who has multiple needs. You know, I have type 1 diabetes, Simi, so when I go to the doctor, I have that problem. Mm-hmm. And any other problem I have that I'm going in to see the doctor about, right? And and so part of that is ensuring uh, that more people have access to full service family practice, so the doctor will know them when they come in, know their know know uh, them, so they're not starting from scratch, which is important, I think, for many people. And also, the new compensation arrangement assesses the complexity of the patient panel a doctor has. Right? So what? Uh, what we're expecting under the agreement is 1,250 um, average complexity patients. But say you are working in an area where you had very high complexity patients, that number might be less, reflecting the complexity. These are the challenges in developing compensation arrangements, of course, is you've got to have a mechanism, and we will have in place a mechanism to assess that. But nonetheless, for patients with higher complexity, and that's more and more of us as we have an aging population. This was a change that needed to happen. One of the reasons why it was so important to work together to have a new compensation model was to reflect the real needs of patients. How will that mechanism then be developed where you're able to assess the more complexity? Well, we, we have on complexity, that's something that we do already. And uh, so that will be in place and the system will be in place that assesses those things on February 1st. And that all those things have been developed and worked with, with the doctors of BC. So there are mechanisms to define the complexity of a particular patient. And uh, that is considered in the, the patient panel that a doctor has to, has to have in place to, uh, to receive the compensation. That's part of, the, part of the deal, if you will. So it's the number of patients you see. It's their complexity. It's the time you, you actually spend with the patient and relief for some of the administrative burden. Those are key elements of the agreement. Well, I know a lot of patients are very hopeful about that. Thank you for explaining it to us this morning. Hey, right on. Take care, Simi. You too. That's Adrian Dix, Health Minister for the province, talking about this new deal with doctors. And as you heard from doctors earlier, they are hopeful. Health Minister is hopeful that what it will mean is you can get a doctor at an appointment when you want it, when you need it, and someone will look after you no matter how complex your particular health needs are.